everybody, to another episode of Church Hurts and the good, the bad, and the ugly about church, religion, and spirituality today with a dash of recovery thrown in along the way. If you've ever had questions about the church, maybe you're feeling a bit jaded in your attitudes towards religion, then you've come to the right place. Because we've got a man, a host, who was an honors philosophy student, an ordained Presbyterian minister, and along the way planted and grew three churches, taught at a prestigious university and preached at a megachurch. Now, well, he's just a self-proclaimed angry curmudgeon who never quits asking the question, why? Why not the host of Church Hurts and Dr. John Bash. Hey, doctor. You know, Paul, and in my lifetime, few things have defined churches more than their music style selection. I've seen choosing a church go from denominational loyalty, um, Catholic, we've always been Baptist, um, Presbyterian, to my church has the best worship, this amazing band, this really powerful service, or we still sing the old hymns, have the same liturgy we've always had. Now in that transition, a lot of people were hurt, felt betrayed, were angry, disappointed, confused. Also in that church, a lot of people in that time period, a lot of people gave up on church, leaving us at the lowest point of church attendance in our country's history. Church hurts. You bet it does. Music hurts. In church, it does. Can we learn something about this? What can it teach us about churches, about ourselves, and maybe maybe something about God. I don't know anyone more qualified to help us navigate these waters than our guest that we have here today. His name is James Ward. And I don't have enough time to go through his list of albums, his degrees, his number of concerts this man has done, the children's music, the diversity of rock, and even his preferred jazz and blues. But I'll say this. James is the most thoughtful Christian musician I know who's walked through the times we now call the worship wars, and he's come out alive and filled with faith and a little bit wiser with his bumps and bruises, though. James, welcome to Church Hurts and. Thanks so much, John. It's a pleasure to be with you uh, from Tennessee, where I live. Well, that's a good place for a musician to be from, I believe. And uh, yes, would, you, would you give us a quick summary of your personal story navigating these rocky waters? Because I know you didn't, even, you didn't grow up in Tennessee, and, but I think you were even a preacher's kid, weren't you? Yes, I grew up in southern Illinois, and uh, my father was a pastor in a rural town. It was a great uh, childhood. We, uh, we learned a lot, and I started playing in church as a child, just playing piano and sometimes singing in the choir at funerals. And um, many, many musicians, if you read their fine print of their bios, did start in the church. And I'm talking about everybody from Aretha Franklin to Robert Glasper. Uh, There's all kinds of musicians out there that uh, began in the church, just like me. And then when I moved to Pennsylvania, I was in high school and um, 
went on to college, uh, our denominational college, and that's when I majored in music. And uh, it was in the 70s, and we were, um, things are simpler then, and uh, so I went straight into a performance career right out of college, met some people in Nashville and made a record, and um, learned a lot uh, from those folks. And I think when we met, John, we were, I, I was back in the Pittsburgh area uh, playing in a very experimental band, and, uh, and um, uh, that, that would didn't be to last it, long. Hey, I was going to say, that would put it mildly, an experimental band. You, you were pushing the edges, and, and you've always seemed to have a, have a way to, to kind of mix um, music and the church and yet really cutting-edge music styles. And in the midst of it, I, you, were, you were even playing it in a bar at a ski resort. Tell me the story behind uh, how you got there. Everybody in the band uh, had worked in clubs in some form, and I did too. And um, although I explicitly was writing a lot of worship and and confessional music, uh, when it came to making a living, we found a way um, by playing Top 40 and playing dance music. And I don't know any musician who doesn't do um, a variety of things. If you're in music for a living... Um, most musicians do that. But, Jim, in this, you really were kind of, I mean, you were living what the beginning times of, of that worship wars, uh, where you grew up in church. They didn't have the kind of music that you ended up doing. And what what was it like kind of having the church uh, where you believe kind of one thing, and yet you were doing this other kind of music, and some people were leaving and fighting and how to give me just a, a little snapshot from your perspective about say the past 40 years of music in the church from a musician's perspective i don't know if you remember there was a billy graham film called the restless ones and it was a very it was a very typical billy graham uh formula for evangelistic movies but in that movie there was a group that sang contemporary music with a Christian message. And this was when I was in high school, probably, it could have been 1964 or something like that. And then when I went away to college, I met black people in my college. And I had not known any African Americans as a teenager, but when I got to college, I met African Americans who could move easily if the music was more like a beat. And in 1971, if you recall, Oh, Happy Day became a national hit on the radio. And that song changed my life. I heard this song, Oh, Happy Day, and it was just totally transformative for me because that song was in the hymnal that I grew up with. Oh, Happy wow. Day, that fixed my choice. So I, I was able to kind of segue into blues and gospel through the medium of of black music. But that didn't necessarily fit your church tradition. And I, I know for me as a pastor, one of the hardest things was to deal with, for me to deal with was when people would turn music into a right-wrong thing. So now you discovered, oh, this other style of music that your church wasn't playing. It, you know, what is it? Is it a right-wrong thing? I mean... 
What makes music Christian? Wow. Well, on that right-wrong thing and getting hurt in the church, yes, there were people who um, said that my music was of the devil. And uh, <laughs> there were people, particularly here in the South, who were influenced by Bob Jones University. And there were people writing books about the demonic power of the backbeat and all these things. And so it was really the hippies getting saved and the whole Jesus movement that began to really change the mainstream church. And we began to see more and more diversity coming into the church through praise choruses and all that. Um, I guess for me, uh, my church background was quite a bit different, but my parents raised me to enjoy music. We were a musical family, and my father sang simple love songs and played ukulele while we were waiting for lunch when I was a kid. He was playing these love songs and he was a Calvinistic, conservative guy, but he knew how to enjoy music for its entertainment value. And I think that really, really influenced me. Wow. So, so you didn't necessarily have to be in the position of a music director where a church was transitioning from the old-style choirs and uh, where the music really was mostly the organ and I know, you know, where I grew up in downtown Pittsburgh, I, my family didn't go to church, but I, I actually would kind of sneak away to go to church on Sunday mornings at First Presbyterian Church. And it was as traditional as you can imagine. They, they had paid soloists, and I have no idea if they believed anything that church had to say. And they would sing stuff, and I used, I used to just cut away, and I'd go down. It, I don't know. I think it was McDonald's. And I'd, I'd get a, you know, a breakfast sandwich and wait them to try to just sneak in as close to when the sermon started as I could because I hated music. And yeah. that was one of those kind of churches. Can you imagine um, if anybody had tried to bring in a rock band into that church? I don't know what would have happened. Did you ever, you didn't have to go through that, huh? Well, I did uh, because in college we had a band that we toured and played churches. And we did experience some of that pushback. And, as, and again, this was in uh, 1972, 73. We, many of the students in this band that we traveled with had long hair and we were wearing bell bottoms and people in the church were horrified. And I remember to this day, the particular pastors who rolled with it, they knew that there was change coming and they knew that, it was, that our hearts were in the right place and they accepted us and they exposed their congregations to something new even though People were really scared by it. And uh, later then, I worked with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which was a campus-based ministry. And then on campuses, of course, you were not dealing with the organized church. You were dealing with uh, the very fluid environment of, the, of, of academia. And students were inquiring and questioning and looking for answers. And they really welcomed a musician that would express things in a more modern style. So InterVarsity was a platform for me uh, in my earliest days. And then later, the band that we, d we had in the Pittsburgh area playing dance music, uh, our, our, we were musicians. We had to do what we could do, and uh, that's what we did. We learned to play a lot of Earth, Wind & Fire and uh, Stevie Wonder, and at that time, it was disco, Boz Skaggs, all that stuff. 
So it was a there was a kind of a during that time in my life it was kind of a both and there was the church over here and there was secular music over here and never the twain would meet, but in my church in Tennessee where I've continued to worship today, we were going through a multicultural uh, project of bringing black and white together to worship, and in that setting, black music had much more freedom, physical freedom clapping, swaying, improvising, and uh, so it gave me a place to grow and to develop as a church musician in, a, in an environment where, where modern music was welcome. Okay, let me just get under that a little bit, okay? And for me, under that, and I'm going to translate this into the fact that I was a pastor for so many years, and and so I'm going to translate it into how people would respond to sermons. And I would basically say, if I had to give the cynical kind of church hurts and point of view, is that people were looking for authenticity, they were looking to be touched emotionally, and they were looking for something to really be concrete. Don't go theoretical on me. Give me the three steps to happiness this week. Um, give me the two things I need to do to feel forgiven. And my temptation, and as with a philosophy and theological background, is I want to say, well, let's look at what's real. Okay, translate that into music. It seems to me, people, you might be, um, I'm trying to do one thing, but basically people are saying, hey, Jim, you didn't you didn't feel spiritual. What would you do with that? I mean, really, people are looking to be touched. It's like, and I personally, you're my favorite Christian musician in my lifetime. But that's because I like your kind of music. What if what if I thought, man, I'm really a classical snob? What? How do you get that feeling in you know religion and music? How do you, how do you deal with that? I I can't help people who totally align their relationship to God with a particular song or a particular feeling that they need to get in order to feel like they've been close to God. That is a tough, that's a tough thing to overcome because culture is all around us and there are many, many different cultures. Even in the town in Pittsburgh that we lived in, there were multiple ecclesiastical cultures represented in that town. There were black folks, there were Orthodox people, there were Presbyterians, there were Reformed Presbyterians who were psalm singers, and they were all there in that same town. But for me, if I wanted to bring something into worship that was both contemporary and scriptural, I, looked, I found this verse in Ephesians, You who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And when you take something from the scriptures and you put it into a setting like Paul McCartney would write or Eric Clapton would sing, you know, it's pretty hard for a, for a person to say that's evil or that shouldn't come into the church. And that happened to friends of mine in our church when we, had, we brought gospel music into uh, a setting in the, se- in the early 70s. And the exhilarating sound, the sound of joy, the sound of, of, of the Word of God coming together with passion and excitement, it was, it was pretty much irresistible. Mm. And, and, and traditional so, people. 
and and so working in a church was just a really a smooth ride for you. It really wasn't stressful at all, right? Uh, we're just ta- <laughs> we were just talking about musical style there. Um, now we're going even to you in a church where you have a variety of people worshiping together. When I was the music director there, we would explain to new members, we are a cross-cultural church, and we're going to be emphasizing music that blends the cultures together. We will do hymns. There will be hymns. We do hymns. We will also do contemporary hymns. We will do music from the black tradition. We'll do contemporary black music. So we had about five different streams flowing together on Sunday morning. And some people that I've heard talk about cultural blending on Sunday have said, you're not really in a dynamic church unless you're uncomfortable about half the time. Uncomfortable about half the time. And why do you want to go to a church where you're uncomfortable? Because God wants us to come together and be one. How the heck can we do that with so so much variety in the world? The way we do that is by submitting to each other. So there was a great... There was sort of a philosophy there that we presented. When we presented to new members, this is the kind of music we're going to do. And I remember one person saying, but Be Still My Soul is my favorite hymn. And, <laughs> and you know, we do. We would sing that maybe once a year, perhaps. But um, people in the church, I think many of them have decided that the church is for them, and they own it, and they pay tithe. And therefore, they are buying their preferences. But that's not really what Christ sent us to do in the church. He sent us to, to have the church be reaching out from our walls. And in our particular church, it was a struggle for me um, as a white man to be constantly learning and listening to and developing black music. It was not easy. And it was painful. It was painful. But I think um, I keep going to the, the, the sense of individuals oftentimes connect worship with a feeling. If it's really going to be worship, it, I'm going to feel a certain way. And I think that people tend to be out of touch with what feelings really are. Um, and certainly I would argue that it's not very good theology to... Um, expect God to deliver to your feelings and to connect that to worship. Um, how does it, but I, I was never behind the piano or choosing songs. How, how do you connect that feeling, people wanting to be emotionally satisfied and their sense of worship? What do you do with that? Well, uh, musical manipulation is not a new game. It is something that's been going on in the church since the 19th century. When uh, famous evangelists would hire musicians to get people to come down the aisle and accept Christ. And there were hymns that were written in the heat of the moment for that very purpose. And the most famous one is called the 90 and 9. And it was improvised by Ira D. Sankey for Dwight L. Moody. Because Moody said, play right now and I want to see people coming down that aisle in tears. And so... The, the use of music to elicit feelings really has is not a new game for musicians. And that is the thing that is hard for musicians in the church to try to capture a particular feeling with a song 
when you may not be feeling that yourself. Mm. You're up there leading the congregation, and you're saying to them, let's sing this song now deeply from the heart, and you're looking at your watch, and you're hearing the sound mix, and there are other things on your mind. And you have to say to yourself, doggone it, I'm not worshiping right now. I'm going to have to worship some other time. Right now I have to lead these people in worship. And believe me, every Sunday, all musicians who are planning worship services are selecting music with their congregation in mind to help their congregation speak to God together in the language of praise and worship, and sometimes in the language of lament, or the language of meditation, or commitment, or conviction of sin. There's all kinds of feelings that we're called upon as church musicians to elicit. So yeah, we have a long list of songs, and you almost always know that if you do this particular song, that people are going to react in a certain way. And I could give you examples, but the current example that everyone feels the same thing, in Christ alone my hope is found, and everybody's hands go up in the air, and people are just worshiping and praising God, and the money is tinkling in the plate, and everything is right in the world. <laughs> you, know, you know that the parallel, of course, as I switch over to uh, the preacher in the pulpit, I, I've been amazed with multiple services um, how um, a pastor can tell a story and cry at the same place in four services in a row. And for go. a while, that bothered me until one man explained it to me that it really was kind of a part of, he said, kind of a submission to allow himself to tell that story with as much passion and authenticity in all four services. Yeah. And he, you know, he saw it more as a submissive, humble thing to do, where from a distance, I was ready to throw the stone and kind of say, oh, you know, like the cynics out there listening, saying, oh, yeah, I know there's going to come a point in time in the service when the pastor can get a little weepy. Yeah. And and people end up feeling manipulated when they see that in the same way that a musician could do. Uh, but let, let me even just add this additional um, twist in there because in music just like in, in preaching as well you get to the issue of kind of celebrity and you know we're in certain churches they have named musicians and certainly many preachers you know have tons of books in their own business on the side just with their materials but you had a point where you kind of had to choose uh, between if you were going to be a musician in the church or um, didn't you come across a few people who wanted to make you a superstar well, yeah, when you're young and uh, you have talent, um, there's usually a couple of encounters that you have with people who uh, say, I could take you and I could, I could take you places that you can't even imagine. Um, the first time that happened was um, when I went up to Nashville from Chattanooga and I had an agent there offer me uh, a contract or, you know, kind of a that he would that he would develop my recording career and my marketing and the whole thing and i wanted to do something different i wanted to go into that experimental band that we were that we had in pittsburgh so i declined his offer and then i got up to the experimental band in pittsburgh and i was in episcopal church one afternoon playing a gig there and this guy came up and said yeah i developed barbara streisand i developed neil diamond and you're next i mean it was literally that obvious that he was 
uh, hustling me. And he said, in no uncertain terms, he says, listen, man, I don't care if you like religious music. Just give me five years, and then you can go back to doing religious music, do whatever you want. Give me five years of your life. And it felt like I was talking... <laughs> the devil himself. Like the devil, yeah, the devil and Daniel <laughs> Webster. You know, he's striking this deal with me. Just give me five years. And then later, as we get into, um, when I got back into Tennessee and left Pittsburgh, and I became a label artist at the Benson Company for five years, and that that company, they also made sweeping offers to me uh, as I was coming on. And then after you didn't sell as much as they wanted then they weren't answering the phone, and the the production of your recordings was held up sometimes for a year if you were not really uh, on the front burner of their lineup, so to speak. So it was very painful, even in the religious music industry, to go from being courted uh, to being uh, explained away. Mm. And but in the church, you're right. There are a lot of um, there's a lot of personality driven church ministries. And um, there's certain musicians right now that are well-known and whose music is, is commercially produced for worship, and they're just big, big stars. People hire them to come to conferences. They fill buildings every Sunday. They have record deals. Their choirs or their praise teams are recording. They are able to hire the musicians that they want. So there's stardom in the church today, mm-hmm. a lot of it. Hey, Paul, I'm going to want to bring you in here for a minute. I have a couple more questions to Jim, but I know you come from uh, even a different side of the church, and I'm kind of eager to hear, um, what what are you hearing here? I'm hearing what I've experienced. I'm a, I'm a lifelong Catholic, and uh, there is no more traditional music than in the Catholic uh, ceremonies. We go back to Gregorian chants. I mean, this isn't just back to... Uh, uh, you know John Wesley or uh, uh, songs after that. This is there's a tradition of church music, and some of it's beautiful and it's moving and it's inspirational to all of us. But it's old, and it just doesn't play very well in modern churches. Not if you're trying to attract anybody of us, you know, under the age of ninety to come to mass. And so I I lived through. I'm nodding. I lived through all that. The the so-called uh, folk mass on Sunday, where they we, they were allowed to have guitars and uh, longer hair and play something there. And I that think was after Vatican II. Yes, after Vatican II, they opened yeah, it was up. Yeah, a and, huge change. Church Huge change. And well, I mean, they first of all, they, it, it, I don't think any of you can realize how strange it was to be a Catholic prior to Vatican II. I do remember <laughs> being a, a little boy and going to Mass in Latin, and the priest didn't face you. So you were just observing. You were off in the distance, and the priest is in his, in this holy trance, you know doing these mystical things and you know i, I know all the controversies of, of protestantism you know is, he's actually doing the hocus pocus he's t- changing the bread into the body of christ and all this stuff but it felt very distant and then vatican ii the the radical thing was that it could be in english or it could be in any local language and the priest had to turn around and face you now now it was a now it was a a joint celebration it wasn't just you observing a sacred person up on a mountain doing a ceremony here. Yeah. And so that change was dramatic. And with that came a revolution in music. Now, i am kind of gone both ways. I like some traditional songs, um, but uh, I like modern music 
tremendously. So I'm always torn. Play the old play the old favorites versus playing something that really moves me and gets everybody singing. And my wife to this day, we still go to church. We're one of the handful left that still go to church every week. And uh, when we go in there, she'll she wants to hear the songs that she knows that she can sing over and over and over again. And they're always whispering. She's like, oh, that one. And she puts the book down with disgust. You know, why can't they just play, you know, whatever it is? Um, So I get it. I think there is a real, to this day, and that was 30, 40 years ago that they brought in folk masses and and modern music and other things into the Catholic Church, and it's still controversial. It still makes people walk out. It still makes people close the book and not sing. Um, and, And yet when it's done right... It can be phenomenal. Mm. Well, I I just think almost any tradition is going to have that story. Um, anybody listening to this who's left the church or even currently in probably has experienced a little bit of the other other side. And uh, well, I'll go one further. You know, I think it's been a demise of the Catholic Church that they have kind of the. I mean, it's it's both the it's both the appeal of the Catholic Church and the demise of the Catholic Church that it's a rigid ritual that's pretty much unchanged for centuries. Except now they've made these dramatic changes after Vatican II. But it's still the the order of the Mass. I don't know when it was first established, but it it's a pretty and wherever you go in the world, it's the same Mass. You know, the 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 gospel the sure. might be different when they preach, but there's some comfort in going through a similar ceremony over and over and over again, at least for, for some of us. And yet, and yet, the fact that they want to moder- it feels staid and irrelevant. And so the, the threat is always of the megachurches here in Orange County. My wife always says, we should go to one. I said, I'm not going to go to one because I'll like it. And then we'll never go back to the Catholic Church here. You know, I know why they go. It's, you know, come on, they put a, they put a show on. I'm not going there. They're going to seduce me. <laughs> well, in the process of this show, we're going to convert Paul. Um, but in the, in the meantime, um, you know, we we really should have a show, Paul, on on liturgy, and I'm not going to get you know James down that route because that's a whole nother one. But I am going to. We've talked a lot about the past, and part of that's because I am an old curmudgeon, and I admit it, and and you probably are too, I think. But you know, part of the pain in the church world and in this style thing we've talked about is churches have gotten to the place that they say, what are we doing where really is a crisis? Because the younger generations are not going to church in the numbers. No. And they say, how do we change that? And executive kind of decisions are being made. Well, I'll tell you how to change that. If you want young people in your church, you better put them up front. In the same way, Jim, you were talking about you know, how you, know, you had to deal with interracial issues um, there were different people who came up front. So what's that feel like as a musician of all of a sudden? Have you have you ever known anybody who's kind of gotten replaced just because they're too old? That is a very common uh, move for pastors who are hired to uh, revitalize a congregation. And one particular Methodist church in our town here, um, they, they got a new pastor, and the new pastor fired the band for their 9.30 service. Now, they had three services in the morning, and one the very first one was 8 o'clock or something, and then there was a 9.30, and then 11 o'clock, and each one had a slightly different style. 
So the so the eight o'clock service had a black gospel band. And the nine thirty was a CCM or contemporary Christian music band, and then the eleven o'clock was robes and organ. <laughs> this is happening all the time in in these in these churches. They're trying to accommodate different interests and different tastes, and the nine thirty band was all let go because they were gray hairs, and they didn't have the right image. They're kind of paunchy and you know and stable and. Uh, so they they fired the band and they hired the 6 p.m. band, which is the young guys, to come in and do the 9:30. They played the same darn songs, <laughs> same songs, but Probably they just not had as their well. spiky hair and they had their skinny jeans and they were. So that that story does have an end though, John. After a mm-hmm. little while, the pastor starts hiring people back from the 9:30 band because they were just so good. They were just good players. They they could play they could segue from one key to another, they could play things sensitively and smoothly. I mean they had learned, so the seasoned musicians were actually brought back in, to play uh, in that setting. But I, that's not the first time I've heard of that. I've heard of musicians being moved around like companies move players around, uh, at Facebook or GM. They move people around to do certain jobs. And the musicians are no exception. They, they're treated the same way. Well, Jim, there's so much that we could talk about. And I'm even going to go ask. I don't know how we're going to be able to hear it here that well. But, you know, um, when, when Paul signs us off, if, just in case we can hear you, if you would go over and switch, not to that keyboard, but um, bang on that piano a little bit, because that's a little bit of heaven to me. Um, but so what's the end here? When it comes to church hurts and in music, Martin Luther once wrote, I would certainly like to praise music with all my heart as the excellent gift of God, which it is, and to commend it to everyone. But I'm so overwhelmed by the diversity and magnitude of its virtue and benefits that I can find neither beginning nor end or method for my discourse. For who can comprehend it all? I think we've seen today, if nothing else, that's right. That music can have a way of, and even how we can cause trouble with the best of things. We know God loves song. May we be more patient with those whose music tastes don't match our own, and be very thankful for a Creator who made us creative too. It's not just music. It's music. For Church Hurts, this is John Bash, and it's worth a thought. Because that does bring us to the close of another uh, episode here of Church Hurts and. And boy, like every time we say, it surely does leave us with a lot to think about. If you'd like to share your thoughts or connect with the guest, visit James Ward Music. That's J-A-M-E-S, jameswardmusic.com. You can hear all the different ideas he has on music. And if you want to connect with our host, Dr. John Bash, he's a shepherd with Standing Stone, a nonprofit ministry committed to caring for pastors and Christian leaders at risk of leaving the ministry prematurely. You can find out more about John and Standing Stone at standingstoneministry.org. So for all of us here who put this show on, yeah, church hurts. But what's the alternative? See you next time, right here on Orange County's only community radio station, octalkradio.net.
There you go. Wow, you guys hit 